Hi, and welcome to episode 78 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Tom Carment. If you visited the Art Gallery of New South Wales this year for the Archibald Wynn and Sulman Prizes, you may have noticed that there was a Tom Carment works shortlisted in every prize, a rare accomplishment for any artist. His work, always painted from life, crosses landscape, portraiture and still life. He's won numerous prizes, including the Gallipoli, Mossman and New South Wales Parliament Plein Air Art Prizes, was shortlisted in the Archibald 11 times, has been hung in the Salon de Refusé over 20 times and has been shortlisted in many other prizes. His work is held in public and private institutions in Australia and overseas. But he's also a writer, and his most recent book, Woomera Lane, Lives and Landscapes, is a memorable collection of stories over the time he's lived in Sydney's Darlinghurst, including pictures of many of his wonderful paintings. You'll find out a lot more about Tom and his art from this book than any social media profile could ever give you. He has a solo show opening at King Street Gallery in Sydney in a couple of weeks at the end of October 2019. And when I visited him at his terrace home, he was in the process of framing dozens of oil paintings for the exhibition, frames handmade from the most beautiful Tasmanian blackwood. We also shot some video and that'll be going online soon on the website and the Talking With Painters YouTube channel. All the works we talk about and details of his book and upcoming show can be found on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Actually, you're probably the first artist I've interviewed uh, for the podcast that is both an artist and a writer. Mm. Um, you've had uh, two books published and this is your third book. Did you always want to be a writer and an artist? I, was, I always wanted to be an artist, but I always wrote, you know, back in... When I was a young man, I, we, I, I wrote a lot of letters to friends, long letters, and I was friendly, more friendly with writers and poets than I was with other artists when I was uh, 18, 19, 20, in my, those formative years. I, I think when I was 18, I met the poet Robert Gray, and he was, uh, with, I had a close friend, and I'm still friends with Robert, so, and I met his group of friends, including, you know, other poets and novelists and people, and I found their company really interesting. Mm. And, and did I, you talk about writing? Yeah, we talked about writing and reading and I used to go to Fisher Library with Robert. We'd go together and um, get books out on his card. And, at Sydney Uni? Yeah, at Sydney Uni. We'd go right. to the stack. and um, So reading was always really important. I was you know, kind of a passionate reader and, and then I, I used to write long letters. And then in the, in, it was in, the, in my mid-twenties I actually wrote my first freelance article for the Sydney Morning Herald when I went to Africa when I in 1981, I went to Zimbabwe with my girlfriend at the time, just after independence, and I wrote a story about um, being in, it was called Salisbury, it wasn't Harare then, and they published it in the Sydney Morning Herald. It sort of gave me some confidence that actually my writing might be interesting to others. Mm. Uh, and also a book came out of that Africa trip yeah, as well. Yeah, so I it? gradually compiled all these stories over this sort of I went back a couple of times to Zimbabwe between 1981 and 83, and then in I showed my uh, manuscript to Peter Crayford, who was, had a small publishing company called Public Pictures, and uh, he's Cressida Campbell's partner. He died a few years ago. Yeah. And uh, he raised the money from Jim Sharman, the theatre director, oh, and he right. paid for the book called Days and Nights in Africa. Were you doing painting or drawing or anything as a kid? Yeah, I, my mum had studied architecture, uh, and didn't quite finish. I think she got pregnant with my brother and got married and did three or four years of architecture at Sydney Uni and was taught by Lloyd Rees, yeah. who she said was fantastic, you know. And uh, wow. so she always encouraged us kids to, uh, my, my brother and sister and I, to, to draw and paint if we wanted to. And uh, so, so I did. I always, drawing was kind of a part of life. You drew. Yeah, right. We drew uh, battles. I don't have any of my... Uh, Juvenilia. I think my father was a good chucker outer, so I, I don't have any of it. I, I remember doing a lot of drawing, and yeah. my brother and sister did. Uh, my brother did too. Yeah, he he loved drawing. So, did you do it at art at school? Or? I um, because I my high school years, I got a scholarship, and I was meant to be a bright kid. So I, I didn't do art till my last two years. Right. I did art in primary school, and really enjoyed it. And so art was it was. 
even when I did those two years of art for the HSC, uh, it was something, because my schedule didn't fit within other classes, I just did it by myself. So it was always a kind of fun and private thing for me to do doing art. And then when I got my HSC, I did quite well. I got a Commonwealth scholarship, but I applied to go to East Sydney Tech then and I didn't get in, so I went to Julian Ashton's. Uh, oh, really? You didn't get in? No. So, so when they've asked me up there to National Art School to give a slideshow or a talk, they say, where do you go to art school? I said, well, you guys didn't let me in. <laughs> Stick that up, you jumper. Yeah. <laughs> just as a joke, I don't care. And I went to Julian Ashton's art school just for one year, and then I went out into the world. That was my art training. So I see myself quite a lot as a self-taught artist, mm, and I mm. was lucky in people I met and, who, uh, and through uh, my cousin Diana, her husband, Joseph Conroy, was a landscape painter, so I was really mentored by him. And he had a friend called Ted Hillier. So they lived near Coffs Harbour on the road to Bellingen. And they moved up into the country way before the hippies did up the north coast. So I had them as mentors as a young man. And, and Robert was really interested in art. He was from Coffs Harbour. And my cousin Diana um, had originally studied as an archaeologist, and then when I came close to her when I was 16 and 17 she was making tapestries and doing doing drawings and paintings so I had these mm. family and other friends who could mentor me yeah and what did your parents think about you pursuing art and going to Julian Ashton oh they were worried because you know there wasn't any security in it you know they said well sure do your art but why don't you my father used to say I should become a mining engineer because I liked collecting rocks <laughs> <laughs> My mother wanted me to be an architect because she'd yeah. had nearly, you know, finished architecture but hadn't. She said, you can be an architect and that's a good outlet for your art. But I was, I don't know, I was quite stubborn and determined that that's, that's what I want to do. And I, so I went my Commonwealth scholarship and didn't go to uni. But yeah, right. I used to always use the uni as a facility, though. I'd go, <laughs> I even used to, I had friends at uni and I'd go to, I remember going to a couple of lectures because in those days you could just wander in. And so you'd spend time in the library. Yeah, I spent a lot. I got. I feel like I got my fine arts education partly in Fisher Library stack. I lived in Glebe for quite a while, and I went at that period of my life. I was living by myself. I'd have dinner, walk up to Fisher Library, and read in the stack until it closed. I think they used to close quite late at night then. Yeah, right. So eleven, ten, or eleven o'clock at night, and I'd just go through looking at the art books and working out what I liked and reading them in, in the stacks. So. What do you, can you remember what, what ones you were really drawn to? I remember one in particular, actually you turned a corner to go into the fine arts section, there was a book called Gout and Goutiness around the corner. <laughs> I always used to think, wow, that's great, that's where I turn left. Um, but um, they had a great section on the German romantics in that mm. library, really fantastic books. And the real discovery for me was Caspar David Friedrich Mm. the German romantic painter who I really love and they had about 15 books on Friedrich but now they've all been shipped out to a storage facility from, and Fisher Library has evolved into something else which I find a little bit depressing mm. because um, I believe in the value of browsing. Mm. I went to Fisher Library as a young man not knowing really what I wanted and it was only by browsing through all the art books I found what I wanted so now you've got to go to a you know, a computer monitor and log in to, you know, discover what you want and then, you, you know, it might arrive five days later from the storage facility. So what, do, can you, is there anything that you think that you've um, carried through from what you learned at Julian Ashton? Um, Julian Ashton's imposed a certain discipline on you to, you started off drawing skulls in charcoal and then you um, went on to the all these plaster casts and then you could do your first tonal still life in charcoal and then in tear vert black and white and then the palette they gave you was quite limited and I think that was valuable in learning to mix colours with a limited palette and now my palette mm. is actually quite broad, I have a lot of colours but I've evolved into that over 45 years and I have a lot of colours on my palette now for the sake of speed. So, you In know, whereas you Ashton's might have said you've got to mix your greys or mix, um, I, I have some mix, a warm grey and a cool grey and I have four different blues. And so three, straight from three, the tube, you yeah, mean? Yeah, three different yellows. It means that when I'm painting from life, which is what I do, I can work really fast because what I'm trying to capture is, is, is so transient mm. and, and I need to work as quickly as possible and be very 
have everything really well organised. That's getting into another area of discussion, but no, that's interesting. I, um, Do you, is that I prepare same? everything before I go out, and I have a lot of paint brushes. I have forty brushes, and mm. it's all about when I see what I want to paint, um, I can commence painting within two or three minutes without faffing around. Yeah. I'm not squeezing paints on my palette because it's about the first sensation. You're trying to you see something, and that's the sensation you're trying to preserve in in your painting. So if you, oh yeah, that looks good, and then half an hour later you're ready to paint, the sensation might have gone. So yep. it's, yeah, I set up my palette and get my bag really organised. There are days when I've get, got out to my painting site wherever I am, and I realise I've left something at home, like my paintbrushes or my. <laughs> Uh, and yeah that is very frustrating but well you don't do that too often because it's so frustrating yeah well i've got a little checklist if i do that and yeah. i think oh i'll go through a checklist but yeah i've seen i've seen that palette that you take out uh well, for, with your oils um mm. that that slides into a box it slides into a box so i can put it into a backpack and it's got little sort of sledge shaped things inside the box which go down the middle and don't skid across the blobs of paint and and when you've got a wet um so say you paint it on board and yeah. it's wet do you I've just carry a, it or i've got a few methods i might take a box like a, i might use a blueberry box and i've made a lid for it you know those little fruit boxes oh yeah and yeah. i make a lid to fold over it and i get that really strong um masking tape that framers use called kikasui tape and i make rolls of that and stick the panel down inside the box and close the lid oh, so right. it won't move around Right. Another method is if I um, am painting on panels that are exactly the same size, I'll put two panels face to face with a little twig in each corner. So I place a twig in the corner, like or a matchstick or something. But there's always twigs lying around if you're painting landscapes. Yeah. Um, and then I put masking tape around and tape them really tight together. So the twig is is Which? creating an, a, a, a five or six mil gap of air between the two faces of the two paintings. Yeah, what a good idea. And then I throw idea. that into my bag and carry it out. Yeah. And do you find that... Um, so would you have that many c colours in your watercolours as well, like uh, quite a uh, wide range? Probably less, I think, actually, with my watercolours. I Probably 12 colours or something. I, yeah. I don't use the blocks. I put little blobs of the watercolour from the tube around and I have two enamel plates which I put face-to-face -face inside some newspaper and then I have a Tupperware container of little watercolour tubes and um, a little tube with some sable brushes, and that's my watercolour kit. Right, and yeah. you you mix them in the sort of centre of the plates? In the centre of, of the two plates, yeah. yeah. right. Yeah. Um, now, I want to take you back to, we're going back to when you're 19. Yeah, okay. 1974, because there's actually a chapter yeah. in your book, yeah. in Wilmer yeah, Alain, right. your yeah. recent book, when you were renting a an apartment next door to Bretton and Wendy, yeah, Wendy Whiteley, right. yeah. Lavender Bay, uh, which was the, the sort of heady times of the height of creativity and partying, I think, at Lavender Bay. That's right. It was quite an education. Um, yeah, I was living next door and then there was a guy called Terry Stanton who was sort of Brett's factotum and builder and he was a sort of manically energetic guy was converting the house. There's an artist called Roland Schlick and his wife Diana and his partner Diana lived there with their two little children and um, in that house at Lavender Bay and they'd lived over, Roland had lived overseas for a long while and he rented this fantastic house on the corner near the harbour and there was a lady living, uh, I think there was a lady living upstairs, an old lady and her children had left home and she decided to move out and Roland had been friends with Brett and Wendy in London and he'd heard they were back from Fiji. I think it was the time when they got deported from Fiji because Brett got caught with some drugs and they'd just come back and they were looking for a place to live and Roland said to Diana, you know, Brett and Wendy are looking for a place and she said, oh, that'll be noisy. <laughs> um, and, I, and she had two little children and, and it was. Yeah. <laughs> they, they moved in upstairs. And then, um, and then I think a little while later, Roland and... Um, and I moved out somewhere else, quieter. Because <laughs> oh, it got so... No so it was sort of really, like, it was, party Yeah, really the they night, were late-night people. Yeah, late yeah, Late-night yeah. people. Well, Brett was 35 when you were there. You were yeah. 19, so that's a pretty big age, age gap. Yeah. What was that? What was... I mean, did you yeah, have yeah. any sort of contact or...? Yeah, I had quite a lot of contact. But, but Terry employed me, basically, to help work on the house and do house painting, and that actually became my my standby income for many years. I right. wasn't very good at it then. 
I learned yeah. later, I worked with some tradesmen later on, but I think I was fairly incompetent at that stage, but I was energetic and doing stuff, what Terry told me to do and Brett was always around and there was always people coming and going. During, they were living in the house during this whole chaotic renovation process. So they, so they eventually, they bought the whole house. Brett had a studio at the Gasworks, which is across in the next bay, a big studio. Yeah. And I think Tim Storia started using that studio and Brett decided to start painting at home in the downstairs of the house. And did you see that? Yeah, that was what was happening then. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember I watched Brett paint a few times in the gasworks or he was always doing things, you know. Yeah. Uh, did you sort of take anything from what you saw? I guess I did. You know, when you're young, of course, you absorb everything that's um, interesting, you know. But there mm. were a lot of... Uh, the one thing I talk about in my story, actually, Brett, I was going to Fisher Library to get some art books and I said, do you want me to get you an art book, Brett? And he said, get me a book on, on Gauguin, mate, you know, Gauguin. <laughs> and um, I said, sure. And when I got to the library, I thought, oh, maybe I'll get him something he doesn't know. <laughs> I got him a book on Albert Marquet. And I said, you really like this. So I was quite, I had a certain arrogance to my, <laughs> at the age of 19 thinking, but... I remember he borrowed a book. I had a book on Giorgio Morandi, the great Italian still life painter, and Brett borrowed that book because he, and he did some Morandi style still lifes, and he took a Polaroid of one and stuck it in the back and gave the book back to me. So, oh, did yeah. he? But he gave me some good. He looked at my paintings and he was gave me some good advice. I think. Mm, you know? mm. And he said, "Why don't you use a Prussian blue glaze here?" Quite practical. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, he right. had a. He was for all his sort of, you know, bohemian sort of wildness he was hard working and quite practical you know, mm. when he looked at someone else's paintings you know um so yeah i think tim story was saying that too that he yeah, was had a, uh, had serious a, about it a protestant work ethic yeah. yeah and what were the so did you do plein air painting then you i presume you i were did doing a, i did a bit i was i was just sort of finding myself and i did um i think in my book i've got reproductions of those two nocturnes i did of the bay so i yeah. sort of started them from life i wasn't a total plan that came a little bit later mm. in my life when I was mm. about 25 or 26 I, I I decided to that was what I was good at and that what, was what right. I really enjoyed right and was a different the, experience for you did yeah, you yeah I just <clears throat> originally I was just doing gouaches from nature gouache on paper and I'd go on these journeys up the north coast and stay with friends and paint from from life using gouache and and they seemed fresher than what I was doing in the studio and better. And um, I showed them to some friends. Some friends have said, this is too, uh, I remember Ted thinking it was maybe, Ted Hillier thinking it was a bit too realistic or just you're just copying nature. But I said, oh no, this is what I really want to do. Mm. Because there was a, a lot of argument in the 70s. You had to have sort of some sort of abstract sort of solidity to your work and people would look at paintings in that era and say you know it works or it doesn't work there wasn't that sort of whereas I was looking at painters like um Caspar David Friedrich where mm. it was all about the subject and yeah but I, I always think there was a formal side to the way I painted from nature it wasn't just slavish reproduction you make a lot of choices when you paint from life and all all the things you've looked at over the years all the art you've looked at even the films you've looked at affect the way you you paint from life um, and when you say you make choices, do you mean choices to what you leave in and leave out? Yeah, what you leave in and leave out. You know, while you're, if you're painting a landscape for two hours, it's, it's not a static thing. That's where it's different to a photograph. Photograph is like, you know, it's this moment in time, but you know, shadows move and sweep across like like a sundial, you know, across the landscape, and things. You know, when I'm out at West Head painting, I used to hear these footsteps coming towards me and then gradually a big goanna would go closer and closer and closer, you know. Things yeah. like that happen, you know, and the light changes. So, you know, yeah. you get days when when someone upstairs is switching on and off the light with broken clouds, say, and you've got to decide, am I doing this or that, you know, and that's quite a challenge. Mm. Um, but I suppose your mood would be different too because mm. if you're in a studio all day, like for yeah. four hours or two hours or whatever, yeah. it's a different state that you're in, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're choosing what record. A lot of people painting in studios listen to music and things. and That's what Brett Wiley used to do. It was always always loud music, you know. Yeah. Bob Dylan bootleg things or Bob Marley or Tim, you know, um, Postcards from LA by Tim Buckley. That was a big 
you, so it was always music and getting yourself into a sort of excited mood or a calm mood or whatever using music and working in the studio but when you're working from life it's just you just just you and it you know yeah there's none of that and at a very young age you also um were finalist in the win prize and when you were in 75 i think it yeah. was and then the art gallery of new south wales then went on to purchase that work yeah so i was pretty young yeah, yeah. it's amazing mm. so that that uh, that must have been just like the year after you were at lavender bay more yeah or less. it was so probably 1975 i'd moved i moved to an old warehouse in balmain terry who'd worked on brett's house had found this empty warehouse that used to be adelaide steamship company oh yeah and it was full of all these old things called pattern dyes which Robert Klippel used to make lots of sculptures. They used to use them to make ship oh. parts. So it was a fantastic place to live in. Well, really, you actually lived in the yeah, warehouse. I lived downstairs in the warehouse. Didn't have bathroom or water or... <laughs> I can't remember what I did exactly about cooking <laughs> and those other things. But um, So yeah. were you there by yourself? Yeah, I was there by myself, but there was people... Jeff, Jeff and um, Bridie, my friends, moved in next door and then there was someone moved in. There were shipbuilders upstairs, people building yachts. And then um, Terry moved in at one stage with his girlfriend upstairs. So it was a bit of a, you know, a bit of a happening scene for a yeah, while. Yeah. And then David Aspen, the painter, moved into one of the warehouses a little bit later. And after I left my space, Sky Warren, the artist, moved into that space. But I didn't really know him then. I got to know, know him later on. Yeah. Oh, well, he would have been a lot older than you, I suppose, yeah, at that point. Yeah, I think point. he was head of the art school then. Ah, and so that, well, that, that painting, Night Road, that was in that, that mm. was in the wind, that was quite a large painting, wasn't it? Because yeah, oh, it was that interesting. was big, yeah. Yeah. That was based on the road near, well, near the road that leads to what is now the Anzac Bridge next to the silos. I used oh. to love that sort of semi-industrial area of Balmain, between Balmain and the city. It was mm. quite... Well, it's still quite, it's sort of similar still. still the silos are still there. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And so what, and how did that, how did you feel um, when the, I, I suppose the gallery actually purchasing the work must have been more important than being a finalist in the win, I presume. Yeah. I, I can't remember how I felt. I was pleased. I didn't have a telephone and things were done by letter. I think I got a letter. So it was, everything happened slowly. Yeah, right. I think it was Wallace Thornton was the trustee and he was the one who wanted to buy it at that time. But then, you know, I had a bit of early success. Then you have to actually plot on with your, mm. with your life. And, uh, Is it a I bit of pressure doing... on you? Is it no, pressure not on really. Happens? I don't know. I stopped doing such big paintings and people, some people were saying, you, you were doing these big expressionist sort of paintings. And, and I just, but the next exhibition I had was just small gouaches all nearly done from life and that was at Robin Gibson Gallery in 1980 and that was quite different that was when I moved into being a plein air painter almost completely. At that point well I mean so from pretty young age you you were more or less identified yourself as a painter I presume yeah and a, and a writer in yeah. a way at that at that point. Yeah, it wasn't until was... my late 20s that I thought of myself as doing the two things more you know but yeah. I did yeah, my cousin recently handed back, um, she found a 27-page letter I'd written from when I first got to Africa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was a bit of a, more of a novella <laughs> than a letter. Um, so I did, I did write long letters to my friends, yes. That must be amazing reading that now. Yeah, I had, it's a bit funny reading old letters, but yeah, it yeah. is kind of interesting. I know, it's funny, it's letter writing mm. has sort of gone out now mm. people just don't do it anymore i still do it with certain friends do yeah. you yeah still correspondent with a few friends and and they do they they write, they write back, back yeah. yeah oh it's just such a thrill now mm. getting a letter in mm. the mail i must say and i like to send postcards too yeah well you've got to be brief that's a bit like tweeting you know you've got to get a, <laughs> a certain number of words in a small space yeah right <laughs> well can we talk about i want to talk more about landscape um and I just want to jump forward now to 2014, mm -hmm. to when you won the New South Wales Parliament Plein Air Art Prize yeah. uh, with an absolutely beautiful painting, um, which is called Afternoon Shadow, William Street. Mm. Can we talk a bit about that painting? Because mm. it's one of my favourites. I really love yeah. it. And it's basically the side of a building on William Street, like a three-storey old building. Mm. It's the part of the building that wasn't ever meant to be seen, really, because... You know, the, sometimes they demolish a building next to another building and that 
had another building alongside it. It was demolished. The facade that was never meant to be seen was revealed on the side of the building. And then there was a, there's a sort of in, a section in it where all the plumbing was outside the building and it was a bit rusty. And I just used to walk up William Street a lot because I was living in a block of flats up uh-huh. at the top of William Street then. Right. So I'd see at a certain time in the afternoon, the shadow would rise up that wall and I just found the colours really beautiful. The, it's just bricks. fantastic. Well, so you've mm. got these three different sections of the building. So you've got the uh, the original wall, mm. then the part that was exposed, and then the shadow. Mm. So you did that plein air. Yeah, yeah, a few sessions. Right, a sitting in William Street because it's oh, a very busy in Palmer Street, street oh, around okay. the corner. It's actually done from Palmer Street. So the front of that building faces William Street, and that side of the building faced Palmer Street, the very end of Palmer Street. And there were a few concrete sort of blockade things I rested my canvas against then it was still I really had to sort of really get all my courage to go and do that I wanted to do it and, and I painting on the footpath or where people are going to see me I find incredibly embarrassing but sometimes mm. I felt I already wanted to do that so I gritted my teeth and did it so I, yeah because Palmer Street's pretty busy as well yeah, yeah so would you have sat on the pavement yeah or? I was at the edge of the pavement in a kind of garden bed with against the concrete bit of wall I don't know these days I carry a little tiny fold-up stool when I paint so I don't sit right on the ground just about I sit about 12 inches above the ground and put my paints I don't use an easel when I'm painting from life usually I just paint rest things against other things so I have to rest the canvas so I don't get parallax error you know you're looking at it fairly square on Oh, sorry, what did you mean? What do you mean? If you're, say, sitting on a chair and you've got your canvas on the flat on the ground, you'll get what's called parallax error because of the your perspective is that. So when you actually lift it up and look at it square, your perspective's gone out. Because, oh, I yeah, see. You right. should be looking at it. Of course, yeah. yeah like, so you would lean it against something or on your... Would you yeah. have it sort of just well, on your I lap? Use, yes, and little ones. And I hold them in my up. left hand. You'll often see a little, <laughs> a little bit of thumbprint on the left-hand side of my paintings from where I've been holding the panel. Um, Wouldn't you get a? Oh, I get a sore arm doing yeah, that. Yeah, I do get sore arms. Um, yeah, but with bigger things, I might improvise. Put my paint backpack on in front of it or something. Yeah, and I improvise, right. but I'm not working really large scale. I suppose that's also got to do with just getting that image down as quickly as you can as mm. well. I mean, mm. holding it and doing that. Yeah, and sometimes yeah, with the bigger ones, I might have to do a few sessions and try and find the same time of day to to and the same time to do it. There's a Spanish painter called Antonio Lopez Garcia, sometimes, who who works on paintings of urban parts of Madrid, which are all completely done from life, and he spends 10, 12 years on them, waiting for the right time of year to go back. He's a hyper-realist, but not a photographic realist, and they're amazing paintings. Um, but he, he, he sets up with big easels on a medium strip or... or yeah. And not working from photographs. Yeah. No. That's amazing. Yeah. He's in his late 80s now, I think. Oh, I'm going to have to look him up. Mm. Um, so, with, so say with that painting, would you start off, uh, would you start off with like a, a rough sketch on, to get the composition right? I did a little smaller painting first and then I did a bigger one. And oh. I've been doing that a bit lately. I've been painting up at my friend's semi-abandoned house at Mount Lofty and I've, there's a few subjects where I um, thought that might make. I did a panel about 21 by 30 centimeters. Yeah. And then I thought oh, that'd be good as a bigger painting. But rather than work from that little painting in the studio to work it up into, I go back with a bigger, a bigger format, a bigger canvas, maybe 22 inches by 18 inches, which is big for me, but not <laughs> for, small for other people. But yeah. and then do a bigger version of the same thing, but just working from life, having done the small one to sort of work things out a little bit. And sometimes, you know, I might draw something and then go back and paint something or I might do a watercolour of something and then do an oil of that same subject. But How do you find, like, go, going back to um, the same landscape each time? I mean, we were looking at some paintings earlier and that was yeah. very interesting that you, st- you just get a different feel each time. It's well, yeah, it's always different, I think. And um, I found that, like, recently I've been going up to the, exploring the Adelaide Hills, which is new to me, and... Uh, I found a few spots where it's quite peaceful to paint oh, yeah. and where I like what I'm looking at. So I have done a few versions of the same scene or, or looking in different directions from the same spot because mm. I've found a spot that's, that's peaceful to paint in. 
and what you mean I, from not being bothered by yes, not being bothered and just on the side of a off the side of a road where no one will notice me and can sit mm. there and paint and it mm. feels you know I go up there and I think I'll go up to Sprig Road today and to, to my spot and um, mm. do another version of that copse of trees or something so I'll, and every time you do go somewhere and I was in Adelaide all winter so the weather was very changeable the light mm. um, and uh, so I found every time I went it would, would be different at different times of day or I'd look in a different direction. Yeah, well, obviously the colours would be totally changing. Mm. So what, what would stop you from... Um, how bad would the weather have to get before you stop? Well, if I'm using watercolours, the first sign of rain, I stop. <laughs> or I have one of those big Bunnings umbrellas I put up. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. So sometimes, yeah, I've got... I don't want to advertise Bunnings, but, um, yeah, so I've used them when it starts raining because they can cover me and what I'm doing, whether it's oils or watercolour, I'll put the umbrella up. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. I, if the rain's hard, I've just got to beat a hasty retreat. With oil yeah. paint, you can get away with painting with a, a light sprinkling of rain, but yeah. it comes a point you've got yeah, to stop. Yeah, you've got to stop. I, I love that uh, in your book you mentioned talking about... Um, painting you drove to a car park looking out at the ocean and it was mm. raining and you mm. had to sort of you were just sitting in the passenger seat with yeah. all your stuff and then you had to reach over and turn on the windscreen wiper that was yeah my mother-in-law has a big old ford sedan uh so i'd borrow that and go down to the car park and it was a, was i was trying to work out how can i paint the winter sea you know when it's really wild weather and it's raining and and um even if you're in a picnic shelter you'd be blown away so I just I couldn't work very big in a car, but I did these paintings from the front of the car. But then you've got the problem of the windscreen getting covered in water, so I had to just keep, you know, I'd paint a bit, flick the windscreen wipers, paint a bit, flick the windscreen wipers, you know. Yeah, yeah. and you did. I think you did quite a few of that scene. Yeah, I did. I think no, a dozen of paintings yeah, of that beautiful. of that scene of the the winter sea. Yeah. Mm. Mm. was good and that's a beach I know well too from summer I've, I've gone to Perth a lot over the years for family connections you know and stayed in this suburb called Marmion north of Perth so I know that beach very well from swimming there early in the morning oh. on my summer visits to Perth and yeah. so in, in the winter it's abandoned and summer it's covered in people and families so it's a very it's a very beautiful the Indian Ocean that, that lines Perth I really love it yeah do you feel like it's a different sort of feeling? It feels very different Coast. to the East Coast. I remember they um, there was um, they made films of, from the Tim Winton book, The Turning, the series that I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It was nearly four hours long. No, I didn't see Different it, directors made films of different stories, and one of them was oh, yeah. really not well done by the. But they filmed it on the East Coast, and I thought that's wrong. <laughs> Just so the light's so wrong. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I noticed light and geography often with films. So you know, for the the river, they got the funding from Victorian Film Board, so they filmed the river. You know, the Kate Grenville book. Oh yeah. You know, um, that was meant to be in the Hawkesbury. They filmed it near. In Victoria, and it just looked completely wrong because the Hawkesbury is such a distinct landscape, you know. Yeah, well, especially the trees, I think. Yeah, and very... the rocks, the geology, uh, yeah, mm. the feel of the place. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Oh, but you'd have to know, I suppose, to know if it was if, right or wrong. If your target market is overseas, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we move on to portraiture because mm. that's one of my. Um, special interests yeah and you've been you know 11 time Archibald finalist mm. and many time in the Salon de Refuse mm. and in other being finalist in many other portrait prizes and you always work from life have you as you've said is it usually your friends that you usually would it's my friends occasionally I've had commissions to paint mainly people's children I've never really done those big um academic sort of um portrait commissions you know like the chan vice retiring vice chancellor oh, right. of the university yeah, yeah, yeah. and i'm kind of glad <laughs> because ropes. i don't think i could really i'm not that capable of that sort of portrait my portraits are, are more intimate yes. and small and uh so i haven't really ventured into that that field of portraiture so it's mainly about painting friends and uh to me it's irrelevant whether they're famous or not and i know that's a criteria for the archibald but not so strictly adhered to these days. I no. think they're more open about all that. Um, you were meant to paint someone distinguished in the arts, sciences or letters, I think. But my portraiture is just recording, 
you know, it's a reportage of my friendships, really. Mm. And, and um, some and people I d don't want to be painted, you know, they just don't want to be painted and that's, that's fine. And some people I've never approached to paint, but uh, others, and some people like being painted, like my friend James Scanlon, I painted him multiple times yeah. over 35, 40 years. Yeah, um, he's, he was in the, this year's Archibald. Yeah. That was great painting of him, I loved it. Um, and does he? And he likes he likes sitting for you. Yeah, he yeah. said. Uh, he was saying to me recently. You know, he's always liked being photographed. Like and being, I think I'm the only person who's painted him. So that's his experience of being painted. But uh, yeah, we have a nice time, and I feel very relaxed with him. And I yeah. try and paint him every seven years or so. <laughs> and our relationship is almost, although we exchange emails and things in between times, our relationship is kind of based on this portraiture thing we've had going for a long time. Yeah. yeah our friendship is really sort of anchored in that. And is it, does it, so you take about two hours, so you would be sitting there for two hours or yeah, so? Yeah, two, two hours, sometimes two and a half hours. It's pretty intense. I work quite hard during that two hours and I'm pretty tired by the end of that. And would you be sitting, so would you be sitting quite close to him? Yeah, about, it varies, but usually about a metre and a half away. Most of my projects I do in the sitter's house, so I go and visit them. Like in the recent case with James, I went up using my senior's Opal card on the <laughs> train to, to Katoomba and carried my gear in a shopping trolley down to his house in Katoomba and um, he sat across the table from me. And, and then, you know, usually I go to someone's house and I look at... It, late morning's good because the light's kind of steady, maybe 10 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, and I look at, I might get someone to sit in various chairs, but it's really important to me that they're comfortable. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Um, sometimes I'll just, we'll just have a cup of tea at the kitchen table when I first arrive and they'll say, oh, you look good there and I won't move. You know, we'll just, oh, brilliant. just paint That's... them there. Would so, you use an easel, like a table easel? I usually, I have got a little sort of, collapsible easel I have used but I often just hold the panel in the canvas or panel in my hand yeah. or rest it on the edge of a table or improvise yeah. in that sense yeah, and I get a couple of wooden chairs on either side of me with one for my palette and one for my brushes and my little containers of terps and medium and it's a bit like a drum kit my I want my palette to be just the right arm stretch not with my arm stretched right out but just with my elbow crooked about you know so I get everything in the right position and then I start painting. Would you, with the flesh tones, would you mix them before you start? No, no, I just do it as I go. I can't really analyse what I do when I'm painting a portrait because it's, uh, sometimes I rub colour into the canvas and sometimes I start by painting an ear. I don't usually start with the eyes. Right, so um, you, wouldn't start, you wouldn't get the big shape down first? I kind of get it, might block out a big shape, but then I'll just sort of start. I have an idea in my head of where I want things to be. Um, and then I, and if, if someone knows what you're painting, that might make them do something unnatural. So if, if someone asks you, what are, what are you painting now? And, and if you're painting their eyes, you'll say, I'm painting your mouth because... Yeah, because so <laughs> then they won't start blinking. They won't start feeling self-conscious about their <laughs> eyes or or if you're painting their eyes, you say, I'm painting your mouth, you know. Just, exactly. It's a white lie for the sake of the picture. And also your, your painting technique is um, wet on wet, isn't it? Yeah. Sometimes I'll rub, a, I'll rub a colour into the canvas so I can work on a colour as though it's working dry, you know. Like a ground. A ground, colour yeah. ground. But to... Yeah, and other time, and then I do work wet on wet. Yeah. So you prefer colours. to have a colour to work on rather than have it like a white canvas or something. Yeah, I start with a white canvas usually, but I might rub a colour onto mm. it. But it's all done in the one session. Right. So yeah. thin down with sort of. Yeah, I don't use much. I lose a little bit of um, a lean medium, but I don't use much medium at all these don't days. Don't you? Yeah. I used to use more, but. Do you find, um, you know, that there's a risk of muddying with, with, you know, wet on wet. Oh, yeah. You can yeah. really get into trouble. And, and if you do really get it too muddy, you've got to scrape it back and wipe it off. And I have... I remember the first portrait I did of James that I really liked was one I, I worked for an hour and a half on a portrait and thought, oh, I don't like this. And I just got a terpsy rag and wiped the whole thing off and it was this... came this greyish maroon colour left on the canvas and then I thought I'll just try one once more and I did this really quick 
painting on top of that colour that I'd wiped off and it, and, and it came out quite well. But it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, so, it's yeah, amazing Sometimes when it I'll get 20 right. minutes or an hour into a portrait and I'll wipe it off completely and start again. And yeah. they go, oh, they look really <laughs> kind of shocked that I've done that. But yeah. I just realise I've, I've got to start again. Yeah, I think you've got to make that decision. Yeah. Um, you can't keep battling with it. Mm. Um, so would you find that you wouldn't want to keep them for more than, say, two and a half hours? Would you not keep going or you just can't keep going yourself? I can't probably run out of energy yeah. myself. And, yeah. um, and they are getting bored with it. I think you know, that last portrait I did of James actually was probably three hours. He's a pretty amazingly patient sitter and can just, you know, he's pretty good, but... You know, like I've painted children and they want to get away really fast. Oh, yeah, how is it painting children? Well, I used to have an old cassette player and I had these cassette tapes of books like Treasure Island, the BBC tape, dramatic oh, yeah. version of Treasure Island. We'd listen to tapes and that was a really way, good way to do it because we'd get engaged in the story together. That, That's, was, that is a good idea. How mm, So like 10, even, 10 or something like oh, that? Oh, even 6 or 7. Really? I've done a lot of drawings of friends' babies. I do it as a sort of gift. But that's easier when they're, you know, one month old or something and when they're sleeping a lot. Yeah. yeah. So did a lot of, they're more in my sort of German Rome, you know, Albrecht Dürer sort of realistic pencil style. Oh, I see. Drawing, I adapt my drawing to different, you know, things. Well, I can imagine with a baby, mm. that, that pencil line Yeah, that is, delicate. I'm yeah. building up the tones with thin lines of pencil rather than, you know, charcoal or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. And would that just be, that wouldn't be coloured pencil? No, just 2B pencils. I might have 10 of them. I sharpen them beforehand so I don't have to stop. Oh, right. So you've always got a sharp point. So yeah. it's a very yeah. thin line. I like to sharpen them with a Stanley knife, a sharp Stanley knife. Yeah. I really like that line better than the pencil sharpener. Mm. What, because you can make it... Sh I don't know. It's just yeah. something about the yeah. edge you get on the pencil with yeah. the blade. Lloyd Rees used to use sandpaper to sharpen his pencils. Oh, did he? He'd rub them on sandpaper. Sometimes if I'm on the footpath or out in the street, I'll, I rub the pencil on the concrete to sharpen it. Yeah, you get a nice like sharp sandpaper. point. Yeah. yeah. And also, do you, so when you use the Stanley knife, do you have a really long sort of lead exposed? No, not really, no. Graphite, really, I suppose. Yeah, it snaps off. 2B yeah. is a bit brittle. Yeah, right, right. And so you wouldn't use, when you draw, you don't use a combination of various, um, what do they call them, grades or whatever. Like, so you wouldn't use more than a 2B, you wouldn't use a 6B or no, whatever. No, I usually just use 2B. You right. know, some people do, you know, use lots of different grades of pencil very effectively, but uh, yeah. I just keep it simple. I like, with most of my painting and drawing things, I like to keep it simple, mm. one thing at a time one medium at a time. I hate mixed media, not just personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I remember didn't... I had to judge a prize a while ago. There was a section, the mixed media section. I said, you realise this is my pet hate and I've got to <laughs> judge a winner in this section. <laughs> you know, hear the word mixed media, I reach for my gun. You know, oh, really? So, no. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I'm yeah. Sounding, sounding like a grumpy old man. Now. Well, with your watercolours... Um, I really love that watercolour that actually was in the win this year. Mm. By the way, congratulations, you're in the Archibald win and Sawman finalist yeah, yeah. this year, which is a really amazing yeah. achievement. I was very lucky, yeah. I don't think it's luck. I think it was well, well done. Um, but, um, yes, that beautiful painting that you did of, um, of where you, you scattered your father's ashes, mm. Oratunga in South Australia. Um, so it's a beautiful watercolour of that place. Um, can you tell me a bit about the story behind that? Yeah, well, I, I just, uh, I've got a friend called Stephen Mukey who's in Adelaide now, and we, he suggested I go along to the uh, Kutsaya Winter School. Um, there's a Kutsaya Creative Centre at the university there, and they have a winter oh, school yeah. where people go up and do their creative, mainly writers, and yeah. go to the Shearer's Quarters on the, the sheep station owned by a woman called Ginny, who uh, used to be head of architecture at Melbourne Uni, or landscape architecture. She's, she, anyway, she likes that sort of thing going on at, on this old sheep station. And oh, so, yeah. But Stephen said, you don't have to teach, just come along and do your thing. Oh, so they were all yeah. attending sort of classes and lectures, and I just, I just pissed off and did my painting for, for five days out there. Um, 
and um, in that beautiful landscape, very mm. dry, wasn't it? But I, I had a little film container with canister with some of my dad's ashes in it, which I'd preserved from when we initially scattered them in Sydney Harbour, which I thought the ceremony was really didn't go very well. It was I felt really embarrassed, was undignified, you know. Yeah, you wrote a very nice um, piece about that in your book. It just didn't yeah. work out as as I, I thought it would, and so I thought I've got to do something a little bit more dignified with my, this last tiny remnant, almost a homeopathic dose of my father's ashes. But he loved the outback. He used to go and do the books for this pastoral company's way outback. And, um, and so we shared that love of that big that outback open landscape. So I thought I'd take a bit of that out there. And then I, I was painting around Oratunga and trying to thinking all the time, where's, where's the spot where I should empty the ashes? And I decided that little valley was where I'd do it. So, and had um, you and and after you did that, was that when you thought I'm now going to paint this? No, scene? I painted the picture the day before. Oh, I yeah, see. and then I called it that because I, I realised that was yeah. probably it's got a story attached to it that yeah. place. So yeah. I think uh, it gives it more significance. And you know, when I actually scattered the ashes, it, I thought I'll just scatter them, and that will be. I found it quite an emotional moment in a way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It was only a small amount. Now, with your still life work, because you've been mm. doing some magnificent still life paintings, I love the type. Which we're talking another another mm. finalist painting is the mm. typewriter mm. that was in the um, Sulman Prize. Um, but you only started painting still lifes a few years ago. What what was the catalyst for that? I don't know. I, well, the I, the actual catalyst was when I went to I was. At the art gallery, and I went to the I saw a Velasquez painting. Oh yeah! At the art gallery of New South Wales, it's about four or five years ago in a big exhibition. But what caught my eye was this painting of a red onion in the corner of the bottom corner of the painting, and he'd he'd chosen an onion. He really painted all the roots at the end of the onion, really beautiful, the hairy roots on the onion. And I, right. and yeah. on the way home, I was buying food for dinner at Harris Farm, and I thought I've chose about the two onions with the hairiest roots and I took them <laughs> home and I thought I'll do some hairy rooted onions and uh, painted them and I thought that was fun because I have tried to paint still lifes before I'm never convinced that I, I was never happy with what I'd done mm. I mean I remember years ago at um, there was a woman who worked at Robin Gibson Gallery saying Tom you should paint still lifes and I said no that's sort of bourgeois sort of thing to do <laughs> like painting flowers you know I won't do that so I sort of didn't wasn't convinced, but then um, then I just um, kept doing more fruit and vegetables, and, yeah. uh, and then a year or two after that, I got into painting eggs, two eggs. Oh, they're beautiful! And, I um, love those egg paintings. Yeah, so um, it was yeah. just a really. They were really hard to paint. Eggs. They were quite hard. I had to really concentrate just that those subtle colours you get in eggs. Exactly. And uh, I just do them in the light well. I've got, we're in a two-storey terrace house where we're recording this interview and there's a light well sort of which is about one and a half metres wide and it's two storeys high and I sit at the bottom of the light well where the light's very even. Oh, it varies during the day but it's right. not direct sunlight but it's very good light. So I would often use an old bit of skirting board I had a wide and it was painted white enamel many years ago so it's turned a sort of umbery white colour mm. and it's a bit bashed around and I use that often use that as a background for my still lifes or I use bits of cloth. I go to buy those bags of rags you can get for cleaning and I wash the rags and I have a vocabulary of colours to put behind things. Yeah. But often I've right. done them on this old white bit of skirting board with the eggs especially I just did them on this slightly off white colour which in different lights looks different and you get different shadows from the yeah. eggs. It was just something very simple. but Yeah, and you did a few I think of my those. partner Jan suggested I paint eggs. I'll have to give her credit oh, for that. Oh, did she? Yeah, what about eggs, she said. And, wh and how did the typewriters start? Because I think a lot of people are in love with the typewriters, well, I, including me. Well, I used to type, so I've always been... Um, I was saying to you earlier that when I wrote, first started writing, when it was back in the late 70s and early 80s and if you submitted something to someone you typed it and I thought I thought I was being really professional when I bought my first I bought a big heavy typewriter because it was really nice to use as opposed to a 
little portable, which feel a bit tinny, so yeah. I bought a big old office typewriter. Nearly broke my arms carrying it home. It was so heavy. Um, and I used that for years to, to write on. Mm. So I wrote my Days and Nights in Africa was all typed in multiple drafts. There must be that, that um, sound of it must yeah, be intoxicating a bit. It's nice. You, yeah. it's, you often... It's a, it's a trope of old movies is the, the sound of typing through a doorway. You know, you, the character will be walking down the hall and you feel, or they'll walk into a, an office where there'd be rows of typists clack, clacking away. So yeah. it's an it's a amazing sound. And, some, and there's the ding of... Yeah, sort the of ding when... when you hit the line. I mean, Cormac McCarthy, the novelist, still types. I think he feels it, it, when you type as opposed to use a word processor, you have to really clarify your thoughts before you write. So, but I, I used to go from handwritten to typed, and now I go from handwritten notes to, to a word processor. So I kind of abandoned typing, but then I, it was just one afternoon, my son Felix had these two friends from Japan, these two young ladies around, he was to the house, and I, I said, um, have you ever seen a typewriter? I don't know why, we were talking about typing letters or something and I brought my old typewriter up to the kitchen and showed them how it worked and they thought this is amazing you know this is so, <laughs> so steampunk and after that I thought I was looking at my old typewriter I thought oh I should try and do a painting of it and that's when the series started. Well talking about um, writing mm. let's talk about your your book that's making its way to the bookshops as we speak. Yes, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Called Woomera Lane, which is the lane we are sitting in where your mm. house is yeah. um, in Darlinghurst in Sydney. And can I say congratulations, it was a magnificent book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. And I really urge everyone out there to get a copy because it's just, especially artists, because they're going to love it. Um, and it's about, there's a collection of, of short stories of, of your time of your life basically while you've been living in this house, but not necessarily here, but also around in your travels as well. Mm. Um, and um, I just loved your writing style. I love the brevity of it mm. because it's what is not said that, that is so impactful, I think. Um, what's your approach to writing? Um, what well, are you aiming at? I don't know. I try and write. I think it's something you need to keep do regularly to... Um, so it's a natural thing to do. So I, I do keep journals. I've kept journal probably, and I try and write something nearly every day. Oh, right. Just I try and think what was interesting that I did today. And some of my stories are derived from those journals, and some of them are just memories of things that I write down. And, uh, and some of the stories in that book were written up to 25 years ago. Uh, I love the one about the hitchhiking to Wyala yeah. in the 90s. Post Belanglo, yeah. <laughs> when not many people would pick you up. That's right. That was quite I don't funny. Know why I did that, but it was kind <laughs> of a moment of madness. Um, but it was such a great. It's a bit Seinfeldian because mm. it's like nothing really happens, but so much happens. Mm. You know, I love the way you observe such small moments, and they're so significant because they sort of point to human relationships. Mm. And, mm. I mean, can you tell me a bit, tell me... Well, um, to hitchhike, you, when you hitchhike and are sitting by the side of the road not being picked up, you notice a lot of things <laughs> and a lot of thoughts go through your head. Um, I can imagine. And back in the 70s, everyone used to pick you up. It was a very freewheeling time yeah. then, you know. I'd pick up hitchhikers, I'd hitchhike. Well, I was thinking after I read that, I thought, gosh, it's amazing how, like, one awful, well, those, those awful series of murders basically mm. changed the whole culture. Yeah. In that way. Originally, I called that story post Malat, sort of hitchhiking post, but we cut out the post Malat bit, I think, just in case that, you yeah. know, people wouldn't get the meaning. But it was really about after the backpacker murders, um, Belangelo forest murders or whatever, of people hitchhiking, it really killed oh, yeah. people's trust, I think. And, totally, totally. And, um, Understandably. Yeah. yeah, still people, some people still hitchhike, but back in the 70s, it was really. You thought, I'm saving the environment or, you know, I'm just sharing. It's yeah. all about that. And also you'd be meeting people fleetingly yeah. and have, having this connection yeah. for like an hour or two. Um, no, it was it was good and sometimes it was bad and scary, but yeah. <laughs> you got through it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it could be really bad. Um, so, yeah, I did this. I, I used to go to Wayala every year to paint on my French sheep station. I used to... Plane fares were expensive then, you know, mm. and I was trying to... I used to get the bus, which would go through Broken Hill, or I'd get the bus that would go across the Hay Plain, and then I'd get another bus to Wyala with my painting gear. And this year I thought, I've, 
I know what I'll do is the bus would go through Broken Hill and then would go all the way down to Adelaide and then back up to Port Augusta. I'd catch the state line at the Port Augusta and then back down to Wyala. And I thought, I could get out at Yunta, which is on the, when, when the, the route starts to go south, and then I could hitchhike through Peterborough and um, across the Port of Augusta, and I'd save, you know, 700 kilometres of bus ride by just cutting across the top. And I thought, okay, so I told the driver I'm getting out at Yunta, and he looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> and at Yunta is just a few houses and a service station, and yeah, so I, yeah. I got out at Yunta, and uh, I, I got kind of down to the road, so I don't know, 20Ks down the road where you go to Peterborough and it got dark, so I was really panicking. But I did, you know, I, I, you have to read the story because it's a... It's, it's a great story a to read. It story. is great and it's funny as well. Yeah. And as I was saying to you earlier, one of the stories that I really um, loved was the, the, the story of when you were painting in Kerrang. Mm. It's sort of like this little snapshot into this town mm. and these different people that came... Mm that you yeah, came across yeah. because of what you were doing. Well, that's what happens sometimes when you plan air painting. And I mean, I don't try to engage with people and I want to concentrate on what I'm doing. So I often don't make eye contact with people if they come and talk to me when I'm painting. I'll answer the people's questions, but I think if you make eye contact that it's an invitation to engage in conversation. Oh yeah, definitely. You were saying earlier that, um, you know, in the seventies that you were you didn't have a landline or anything. You communicate by letter and mm. telegram. I think as well. I read you telegram. Saying. Yeah. Um, but and I notice now that actually worked as a telegram boy once at oh, Crow's Nest Post Office with oh, a red really? bicycle. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, so they still had telegrams in the back in the seventies. Yeah, and then they went out. Yeah, yeah they right. still had telegrams. God. Um, and now I notice you're not on on social media at all. No, not. Um, but. Is there, are you, are, do you avoid that actively or is it just not something that you're interested I in? I do avoid it really. I just, it's not something I'm that interested in. My, my partner, Jan, has Instagram and shows me things oh, on it. Right. So I can see the attraction of yeah. Instagram and it's nice sharing photos with friends. I think that's great. But uh, yeah, I'm not that involved with social media. I just, I just don't want to be interrupted by what I'm, in what I'm doing. So that's why I don't engage that much with it. Some people get annoyed with me because I, I don't have a mobile phone. And, um, but I think if I did have a smartphone, I'd, like everyone else, I'd be wanting to look at it and check things all the time. And, uh, but that means I, you know, I'm partly dependent on my partner, Jan, having a phone. I'm a bit like someone who bludges cigarettes at parties, you know. <laughs> it's like occasionally I might borrow a friend's phone and you know, I can, I can realise the, the, the sense of it, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I try and be well organised and punctual so if I make I make arrangements and I stick with them rather than that very amorphous social engagement people can have oh well I'll text you when I get there and tell you where I am and and, and it can get very untidy. Totally yeah Uh, that's right Um, yeah I agree with that actually that it makes it too easy and then sort of manners go out the window. mm. Anyway, Tom, can I thank you so much for for having me here today and for your time today and good luck with your show at King Street Gallery, uh, which opens soon, and also the launch of your book. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Carman. I certainly did. His show at King Street Gallery is not to be missed and make sure you get your hands on a copy of his book. If you're following Talking With Painters on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you might have seen some video clips of show openings I've been to of podcast guests recently, Amanda Penrose-Hart, Del Catherine Barton and Vanessa Stockard. And I've also been doing some live Instagram at those openings, which stays up for 24 hours, just to give you an idea of what's going on in the Sydney art scene. Thanks for all your reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts. That seems to be the way podcast success is measured worldwide these days, so it's really helpful when that happens. As you probably know, subscribing to the podcast is free on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, as is subscribing to the Talking With Painters YouTube channel where there are nearly 100 videos of all the amazing podcast guests. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. Last winter and and the summer before that I was in staying with my mother-in-law in her house um, and um, 
to keep myself busy, I, I went and looked for a couple of old typewriters. I found one in the Salvos and I found one in a second-hand shop at Guildford and bought, bought the typewriters just to paint. And then I put them in the back shed, my late father-in-law's tool shed, and mm. painted them out there with the door open. Yeah. Was the light good there? Is that why you chose yeah, that? Yeah, Perth light's different. It's yeah. a different light. It's a lovely light, especially in summer. Mm. Yeah. Strong. Mm.